Ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to begin. And if you were paying close attention when we were listening to the music as you came in, you might have recognized why we were playing that particular piece. The piece, of course, is the hymn, The Spacious Firmament on High, uh, written by Joseph Addison with music by Haydn. And it fits in beautifully with this whole idea of natural revelation that we've been talking about as part of a bridge in apologetics. And, of course, Joseph Addison is the one for whom Addison's Walk at Magdalen College, Oxford, is named. Uh, the walk where Lewis and Tolkien spent the evening with Hugo Dyson on the night that led to Lewis's conversion. So this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to finish up the idea of natural revelation and the idea that the glory and the beauty of nature are things that point us inexorably toward the creator. Now I want to just share again uh, this excerpt that's in the PowerPoint from Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer. And this particular one shows, I think so beautifully, the idea of the Christian contemplation of the beauty of nature. This is something that's deeply rooted in Christianity, and unfortunately, particularly in evangelical Protestantism, we've lost touch with this natural revelation, natural law tradition. And part of the uh, uncomfortableness that some people have with it is that uh, they think it's nature worship or pantheism or paganism. But the thing that's different about the Christian contemplation of nature is that we look at nature, as Lewis tells us, as a pointer to the one who made this beauty, the one whose mind and creativity made all of this. And the result of that is that we are moved to focus our hearts and our minds on praising God. So this passage, if you want to follow along, yet you were not, or so it seemed to me, telling me that nature or the beauties of nature manifest the glory. No such abstraction as nature comes into it. I was learning the far more secret doctrine that pleasures are shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility. As it impinges on our will or our understanding, we give it different names, goodness or truth or the like. But its flash upon our senses and mood is pleasure. I have tried since that moment to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. How shall I put it? We can't or I can't hear the song of a bird simply as a sound. Its meaning or message, that's a bird, comes with it inevitably just as one can't see a familiar word in print as a merely visual pattern. The reading is as involuntary as the seeing. When the wind roars, I don't just hear the roar, I hear the wind. In the same way, it is possible to read as well as to have a pleasure, or not even as well as. The distinction ought to become, and sometimes is, impossible. To receive it and to recognize its divine source are a single experience. This heavenly fruit is instantly redolent of the orchard where it grew. This sweet air whispers of the country from whence it blows. It is a message. We know we are being touched by a finger of that right hand at which there are pleasures forevermore. There need be no question of thanks or praise as a separate event. 
something done afterwards to experience the tiny theophany uh, which means the showing of God himself is itself to adore gratitude exclaims very properly how good of God to give me this adoration says what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations or flashes of light are like this one's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun so what Lewis is telling us is that this beauty that surrounds us as last week when we were contemplating the dogwood and the crepe myrtle and the magnolia tree this beauty this beauty that is thrumming with life uh, an unnecessary beauty there's no evolutionary reason to have a dogwood a crepe myrtle and a magnolia with their different scents and their different blossoms and their different colors they're there for beauty and God is the author of that and the idea that connects this with apologetics is that regardless of one's faith or complete lack thereof most humans are still sensible to the idea of beauty and it begins to provide a bridge by which we can speak some common ground just in the same way as if you were traveling in your boat in the low country and you landed on an island that you thought was deserted and you came around as you were walking on the beach the point of the island and all of a sudden there's a beautiful house there and you go in and it's beautifully designed and there's furniture and air conditioning and a kitchen and all of that your first reaction would probably not to be to say wow that pluff mud has really been busy creating this house no you would think that there had been agency that there had been a designer a builder and that you would wonder what he was like and you might get some glimpse of that through looking at the house he had built so part of our apologetic task is to consider cultivating how we see to recover our sense of wonder to open our eyes and look up at the vault of heaven again one of the things that's so sad is that for many of us who live in cities we are immune to the beauty of the night sky one of the things Lewis was concerned about was that in the 20th century really for the first time in the history of humanity many people began spending more time indoors than they did outdoors for most of human history people were outside on a regular basis and people were very familiar with the night sky and its beauty and glory and I would encourage you next time you're out in the country or somewhere far away to spend a good 30 minutes just gazing up into the night sky part of our problem is that our eyes take a while to adapt to even be able to see the night sky so five minutes even in a place that's very dark is not enough to be able to see the great beauty that is there but this idea of uh, recovering our sense of wonder can be a great bridge to finding some common ground for conversations I want to look now a little bit at what scripture tells us and scripture is full of the idea of natural revelation but I want to just look at three passages tonight the first one from Romans for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. What Paul is telling us is that the world, the created order, points us to God. It shows us about his nature, his eternal power, and the fact that he is greater than we are. Then from Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This beautiful passage might remind you a little bit of some of the uh, lines in Tolkien's poem Mythopoeia that we looked at uh, a couple of months back with that idea that the night sky is not just full of balls of gas, but that it is a beautiful jewel-woven tent. This whole idea of the heavens declaring the glory of God is what's behind Joseph Addison's hymn that we heard earlier tonight. And it's an important part of understanding the beauty and the majesty of God. And then, lastly, from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, is Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, Many people will tell you, regardless of their faith, particularly people that are philosophers, that the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most sublime teaching in the history of the human race. But sadly, I was reading an essay not long ago by someone who was concerned about the state of education and had gone back to teach in a Catholic school. And going into the Catholic school felt comfortable at least with the idea that here a Christian worldview still framed what was being taught. But this person was deeply disappointed in a high school class when she began to talk about the Sermon on the Mount and saw she was just getting blank stares from students. Now, this was a Catholic school where there were a lot of students who were not Catholic. And in this class of 20-some-odd students, not one of them knew what the Sermon on the Mount was about, nor did even one of them know who had given it. This is a sad commentary on what is going on in our education system. Part of the thing about the Sermon on the Mount that's so remarkable is that Even people who are not Christians are drawn to its vision of the kingdom of God. Perhaps most famously, Gandhi, who lived in a very simple cell for most of his life with a bed, a table, a chair, and one book. And the one book that he had, although he was not a Christian, was a copy of the Sermon on the Mount, which he said was the most sublime teaching in the history of the world. But in this passage, Jesus tells us that nature reflects the beauty of God and God's care. This section, interestingly, is right next to the section with perhaps the most disobeyed command in Scripture, where Jesus says multiple times in this chapter, do not worry. How many of you worry on a daily basis? 
Yet Jesus tells us not to worry. And part of the reason we are not to worry is that we are to look at, that is to consider, the birds, the lilies, the grass. We're to consider these things that God has made and reflect on them and then realize that God cares for us so very much, even more than them. And it's a good reminder again of this idea that goes so contrary to our atheistic, nihilistic, rationalistic, materialistic view that says there's no difference between a cockroach or a rock or a leaf or Henry Fishburne. It's just an accident who you happen to have turned out to be. But what Jesus is saying here is that man is made in the image of God and that he is above creation. He is the summit made in the image of God. So nature points us to a designer. It is not to be worshipped for itself, but as a reflection of the creator and his glory. So wrapping up this section on apologetics, we could spend an entire course on apologetics, which might not be a bad idea, but we need to move on. I want to just draw a couple of lessons from Lewis's example in apologetics. The first thing is that we should be seeking to be wholly converted, to not be compartmentalized Christians, but to be wholly converted in our worldview and our priorities and our living out the great commandment. Lewis shows us that it is only by being all in, realizing that we're part of another kingdom, that we have anything to offer to this world. The second thing is to make relationships a priority. We've talked about how Lewis, although he was busy and famous, made relationships with all sorts of people a priority, not just those friends he was deeply committed to, but people who God put in his path each day. One of the remarkable things about Lewis is that he gave deep attention to each encounter, and up until the day he died, answered personally every letter that he wrote. Lewis approached relationships with deep humility. So we've talked about the butcher that he was friends with. He was no distinguisher based on class or wealth or anything like that. And in fact, Lewis himself, in his humility, set up a blind trust that all the proceeds from his books went into. He made lots of money on these books, but didn't receive any of it for himself. was mostly given away to widows and orphans and others in need. The third thing is to give of yourself and seek common ground, looking for stories and metaphors. And then we see how Lewis shared from his heart with others. He was willing to be vulnerable, to realize that he was not all that it was about. I'm reminded again of that quotation that Christianity is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. We see this in Lewis's deep humility that shines out of his letters, and it would be a quality that we would do well to emulate. Another thing we can learn from Lewis is how important it is to ask good questions, good questions that lead us deeper into understanding what's going on in the heart and soul of this person made in the image of God with whom we're speaking. And then lastly, to pray without ceasing. Lewis was a prayer warrior. After his conversion, he went to worship pretty much daily and sometimes twice, but in addition to that, kept a prayer journal and had a very disciplined system of praying for others in his life. 
So I would commend these things to you as we consider the urgency of the apologetic task in this age that is running headlong into the arms of secularism. And speaking of secularism, let us now turn the corner and look at some of Lewis's writing on this idea of education. Lewis was hugely opinionated about education. You will remember from his biography early on in the course that Lewis's mother died when he was a young boy about nine years old, and Lewis was sent off across the sea to boarding school at that early age in another country. He was sent from Northern Ireland to England, and the school where he was sent was terrible, and he was miserable, and he wrote his father begging that he would bring him home out of this terrible place where the headmaster was insane. And of course the father, like any good parent, kept saying, stick it out, it will get better, it will get better. Unfortunately, though, in this case, Lewis was right on the money. In fact, the headmaster was insane. At the end of the year that Lewis spent there, uh, officials from the public health came and took the headmaster away in a straitjacket where he was institutionalized. Lewis continued to have terrible experiences in school until uh, around uh, the end of his 16th year, he finally had a great educational experience with a tutor called the Great Knock, Mr. Kirkpatrick, who prepared him for Oxford. Kirkpatrick was not a Christian, but he did teach Lewis how to think logically. And that was the beginning of Lewis's love of learning, that he became fascinated with learning and, like a sponge, eagerly absorbed all that he could about every aspect of learning. But Lewis found that schools didn't generally do a good job with that. And his work, most famous work on education, is called The Abolition of Man. Uh, I commend this work to you. Although it was written uh, originally to be a series of lectures, highly prestigious lectures given at the University of Durham, the book form of it is perhaps Lewis's most prophetic work, where he sees that by changing the standards of truth, beauty, and goodness from objective to subjective, we eventually will undo all that is good in human culture and civilization. One of the quotations in that book says, For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. And part of what Lewis is saying here is that the vast majority of pupils do not have any kind of intellectual life, that there's nothing there, and that they are like deserts that need to be watered. One of the most interesting things about the abolition of man is that Lewis tells us that he has written this work in two different forms, the essay form and the abolition of man, and that he's taken the same principles and illustrated them in the novel That Hideous Strength, which is the last novel of his acclaimed space trilogy. And if you're like me, the fact that he's written the same thing in two different genres makes you want to grab both of them and sit down and compare. And I encourage you to do that. That Hideous Strength is a brilliant book. 
and along with um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is arguably the most prophetic work of fiction from the early 20th century. So some of the main points in Abolition of Man, which I commend to you, the handout, uh, it is a little bit dense, but it does do a good job of pulling out the main points of these lectures. The first thing that Lewis says that most of us would agree with is that the purpose and nature of education are foundational to life and culture. They're not an add-on. The framework that we build in students as they come along is the foundation on which our culture is built. Most of you who are my age will remember that when you were in school, you took a course called Foundations of Western Civilization. And that talked about the great concepts coming out of Greece and Rome and then out of the foundation of the American Republic, ideas of freedom and liberty and the rights of man and uh, human dignity and all those kinds of things. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, if you don't know, that course is no longer taught. Uh, it's viewed as being racist and patriarchal and all sorts of things like that. And unfortunately, even though we must admit that the story of humanity is laced through with oppression and mistreatment of minorities and other things like that, and our haste to embrace a more inclusive worldview the educational establishment has very often thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Lewis tells us that education is not just the teaching of skills, but the inculcation of values. Lewis rails against the idea that the purpose of education is to get a job. This is deeply held in our culture where we hear over and over again the idea make good grades to get into a good college so you can get a good job, so you can make lots of money, so you can be happy. For most of history, the purpose of education was thought to be about how to be a good person and lead a meaningful life. Lewis also tells us of the abolition of man that people long for leaders who are virtuous and trustworthy, but that we have rendered that impossible by creating an educational environment of extreme moral relativism. Moral relativism meaning that there is no such thing as an absolute standard of right or wrong, goodness, truth, or beauty. It's all subjective, all up to the individual. The classical view of education was that it was to train people to love goodness, to hate evil, to live lives of meaning and purpose, to become good and wise in all spheres of life, not simply to acquire knowledge and skills. Lewis would be appalled with some of the things that are happening in our education system today, where all the things that teach us about values that are transcendent have been thrown out and that we've been replacing them over and over again with narratives of the oppressed. And I'm not saying that narratives of the oppressed are unimportant, but they have to be set in the context of the ideas that have been the foundations that have led to freedom and led to the flowering of civilization. 
Lewis also rails in Abolition of Man against chronological snobbery, the idea that we are so much smarter, so much better, so much more advanced, so much more progressive than any other age in the past. And because we are so much smarter, why in the world would we want to try to learn from people that had come before? Lewis points out how dangerous this is, particularly citing the idea of eugenics. Eugenics, of course, is the idea of using genes and selective reproduction to try to create a master race, which for us uh, usually equates to Nazism. But we forget that in the 20s and 30s, eugenics was embraced by all of the academic and liberal elites in Europe and the United States. The author H.G. Wells was a great proponent of eugenics. There were church and university leaders who were great proponents of it. And it's only after the Nazis adopted it um, that it has been tainted. So part of the purpose of education, according to Lewis, is that it's about changing us. It is helping us to realize that we are not always right and that we can gain a deeper and better grasp of reality by experiencing the world the way others do. Part of this goes back to the classical view of education where debate about ideas was so important. Most of you who are my age or older had to do a lot of debate in school, but debate in school is largely gone now. But one of the great virtues of having to debate ideas was that you were often assigned to debate ideas that you disagreed with. And in that process, you had to marshal arguments in favor of the ideas that you disagreed with. And what you learned through that process is that on both sides of a question, there usually are elements of truth. And that in doing that, you learn to respect your opposition, someone who holds a different idea than you, but also learn how to discuss things rationally and civilly. This is a skill that is in very short supply in our culture today. Lewis tells us also how important it is to set education in the stream of what he calls deep church or mere Christianity, that historical mainstream of what Christians have always believed in practice deeply rooted in the past and meaningfully engaged with the present. One of Lewis's chapters in The Abolition of Man is called Men Without Chests, and he takes this chapter from the idea that your chest is the seat of your heart, the place where you are able to discern about the standards of truth and goodness and beauty that God has placed within humanity and built into this world that he has made. But he says what's happening is that school children are taught now to disavow those things that we have always believed about humanity and about standards. And as his argument progresses, he talks about this book about literature that's designed for school children. And he says that this book, if it succeeds in getting into the classroom and teachers and students adopt what it says will ultimately lead to the abolition of man. And what this book does is it talks about uh, the example of a waterfall uh, described in some of the writings of Coleridge. I would commend Coleridge to you if you didn't have a good background in poetry. 
uh, and growing up, uh, go and read some of Coleridge's poetry. It's wonderful. But in this book, it talks about the idea that Coleridge expresses of some people walking through the woods and hearing the sound of water and then coming around the bend and seeing before them this glorious, beautiful waterfall cascading with light and energy and beauty. And they talk about the sublime nature of this experience. What Coleridge would say and what Lewis would say is that things like this waterfall are glimpses of beauty with a capital B, something that all people would regard as beautiful. But in this literature book that Lewis is taking issue with, students are told that the waterfall is not necessarily beautiful. It's just a subjective judgment. It's up to each person to think about what they consider to be beautiful. So in the book, Lewis says, school children do not learn their lessons in literature that these books are intended to teach. Another little portion of the human heritage has been quietly taken from them before they were old enough to understand. Instead, they are taught lessons in philosophy in which ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake. At the same time, the children have their souls cut out. How so? By virtue of instruction in emotivism, or the view that all sentences expressing values, i.e. the waterfall is sublime, are about the emotional state of the speaker, and not about anything objective in the waterfall, or anything else for that matter, that all such statements are unimportant, that all values are subjective, relative, and trivial. All emotions espoused by local associations are in themselves contrary to reason and contemptible, now, if you step back from this, this is a breathtaking break with the great stream of human tradition, not just Christian tradition, but really all tradition, what Lewis calls the Tao, uh, and this is what he calls the stream of moral constants that are true across ages and cultures and civilizations. And he has a wonderful appendix in the abolition of man tracing these ideas, things like the idea that rape is always wrong, no matter what culture you're in, that respect for elders is important, no matter what culture you're in, that cowardice is frowned upon, no matter what culture you're in. But in this literature book, Lewis points out that if you take these sentiments to their logical conclusion, basically you will arrive at the idea that there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as beauty or truth or goodness. And of course, the natural result of that is that if you look at something like Nazi Germany, you will be forced into the position of arguing, well, that was an authentic belief for those people at that time, and it was enacted by their legislature through popular vote. So who are we to say that that was wrong? It also reminds us of that ancient principle that you probably learned if you studied Latin, dulci et decorum est pro patria mori, that it is a sweet and beautiful thing to die for one's country, the idea of the nobility of self-sacrifice for a noble cause. But interestingly today, when students are asked if they would ever die for their country willingly, the vast majority of them say, no, why would I ever do that? 
part of the idea of the subjectivization of standards of morality is that it leads to a radical self-centeredness that also will lead, as Lewis says, to the abolition of man. Perhaps the most uh, glaring example that one can find of this in the educational establishment today is in the AP system. The advanced placement curriculum has taken over most of the prestigious schools in our country, and it is a de facto national curriculum. But it's very troubling what's going on in that curriculum. Some of you, if you read in educational journals, will remember that there was a huge uproar about the AP U.S. History curriculum revision a couple of years ago. And that uproar did result in a few changes, but mostly cosmetic. But what happened was that in the AP U.S. History curriculum, all of the sections about the founding fathers and the reasons for the American Revolution, the idea of freedom and the rights of man and those ideas rooted in John Locke and other philosophers, all of those were minimized and downplayed and instead we were told about the faults of the founding fathers that they were all slaveholders and therefore uh, our republic was founded on oppression and then on genocide of the Native Americans. While there may be some truth in these things, to throw out the entire philosophical basis of the American Revolution because of personal flaws, uh, real or imagined in the Founding Fathers, is revisionist history at its worst. You also will see that in the European history section of the AP curriculum, they don't begin until 1450. If you remember, 1450 is uh, into the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, but after most of the great events in the development of Christianity in Europe, uh, leaving out things like the Magna Carta, and coinciding uh, the late 15th century with the development of colonization. And this, of course, goes along with the narrative that the foundation of European civilization after the 15th century was the colonization and oppression of other people by white men. Now, while there may be some elements of truth in these oppression narratives, again, we are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The AP English Curriculum Guide from a few years back states the following. We used to privilege the text over the reader, but now we know that objectivity and factuality are questionable. Thus, we try to teach the students to find their own reality in the text. We hope that they will find values to guide them through a mad, mad world. In other words, teenagers are being told that they are smarter and more wise than any ancient text or thinker, and that it is up to them to set themselves up as the grand judge over any piece of literature or what it purports to tell us about humanity or truth or goodness or beauty. Objectivity and factuality are questionable. I am the captain of my soul, the master of my fate, and it is up to me to decide what is true or good or beautiful. The abolition of standards of what is true, beautiful, and good leads to the destruction of reason and humanity. And the little example that we talked about 
uh, in class, we had the students array themselves from one side of the room to the other based on height, tallest on one end, shortest on the other. So Gant Fallon was very happy to be the tallest person, Elizabeth Bowles and Cynthia Patterson, perhaps less happy to be the shortest people, when I told them that if we were going to pretend that this was a real college class and I was the professor and I was announcing the grading scale, which was that if you were tall, you made an A. If you were short, you failed. Everyone thought that that was a ridiculous idea. And, of course, the immediate response is, you can't do that. That's not fair. But, of course, as soon as you say that's not fair, that implies that there's some sort of standard to which you're appealing. But, as I said, as the professor, I am the one who is in charge. If there is no absolute standard, I can do whatever I want to. And if I say that tall people get an A and short people fail, that is the way it is. And this is the example that shows us how the abolition of objective standards leads to tyranny. Power is the only game in town. It leads us right back to that title of Lewis's opening chapter in Mere Christianity, Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. We find, despite our railing against the idea, that this idea of right and wrong really is deeply embedded in the human soul, the idea of fairness and this idea of a standard. Part of the reason this is so important is if we lose this, then tyranny is the only game that will be left, because it is all a matter of power. There's no standard that we can use to judge something as right or wrong. And we see this expressed beautifully uh, in the Harry Potter stories of all places, where Lord Voldemort, the ultimate villain, says there is no good and evil. There is only power, and those too weak to seek it. So we see that in those words, Voldemort captures the problem with the failure of the education system to be teaching us about what is right, what it means to live lives of goodness and truth and beauty, what it means to have a worldview that takes in the majesty and wonder of God. Lewis has much more to say about this that we will come back to next time. So for now, let us close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we confess to you how easy it is for us to be swept up in the tides of our culture, to be swept up in the idea that my feelings about things are all that matter, that there is no such thing as truth or goodness or beauty. But Lord, we know that we are made in your image and that you are the author and source of all these things. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to know and to love you, to seek after you, to seek after your truth, and that you would help us as we train up our children and as we converse with those in our path to live out the truth of your gospel in a way that gives life and light to a culture that is walking in darkness. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.